good to be back with you all in person again after uh, COVID kept me away from you two weeks ago. And honestly, I thought maybe I wouldn't be here this morning either after our director of worship tried to keep me away uh, this morning as well by forcing me to run a half marathon with them yesterday. So <laughs> a few months ago after Sarah and I ran the riverbank, he thought you must like running and he was wrong. <laughs> But I did it with him anyway, and now I've got blood blisters on both feet, so thanks, Matt. <laughs> uh, I'd like to have us open to our text for this morning, 1 John 3, 16 through 18. 1 John 3, verses 16 through 18. And if you're using the Bibles in the pews here, that's on page number 987. And as most of us probably know this morning, uh, we're in the midst of a sermon series looking at the topic of generosity uh, here at Ivanrest Church. And if you're new or visiting with us this morning, you might be wondering why we're doing that. In fact, even if you aren't new or visiting, you might be wondering why we're doing that. I mean, are we gearing up for some kind of a building expansion here at Ivanrest Church? Am I, as a pastor, jonesing for, you know, a higher salary and a raise? Uh, or is this one of those prosperity theology churches that preaches God as a kind of divine cashier who we bribe so that then he gives us health and wealth and everything else we want? After all, those are the sorts of stereotypes that you hear about churches when they start talking about this, when they start talking about generosity and giving and money. But that's not why we're doing this. Uh, for starters, we're not doing a building expansion, at least not as far as I know. Um, and I'm not getting some huge raise, nor do I think that I should. I'm very grateful for how this church has supported me and my family. Just as an example, I still have not had to buy a meal at Five Guys yet since moving here, because <laughs> you all keep giving me gift cards there. It's great. Um, it also makes a wonderful post-half marathon meal, in case you're wondering. And we're also not a prosperity theology church either because we don't believe that God rewards us based on how much we give. In fact, we believe pretty much the exact opposite of that, don't we? As a gospel-centered church in the historically reformed tradition, we don't believe that God gives us his, his gifts and bestows his blessings on us uh, because we deserve them. Instead, the opposite is true. God gives his blessings to us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve them. We call that grace. He freely gives us his gifts, his blessings, whether we deserve them or not. And of course, the greatest of those gifts is the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's why we're talking about generosity here right now. That's why we're in this sermon series, because the basic idea of this sermon series is that generosity starts with God. Even though we don't deserve it, God gave us his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us. We call that the gospel. It's good news, right? At least it's good news for us. But it was costly for God, and it was costly for Jesus because it cost him his very life. That's the kind of generosity that God has demonstrated towards us. And like we've already said in this series, that's the motive for our generosity as Christian believers too. In Christ, God has given us so much, and so we are called to be generous people as well. And that's what our passage this morning is all about. So let's take a look at it. 1 John 3, verses 16 through 18. And this is what the Apostle John writes back then to his original readers as well as to us as Christians today. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and does not take pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love not with words or speech, 
but with actions and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, I love studying John. If I had to pick a favorite of the four Gospels in the New Testament, I'd probably pick John's. And I say that for a number of reasons. Uh, first, it's the most unique of the Gospels. Uh, second, it's also the most poetic, which the English major in me likes. And it's also the most theological of the Gospels, which the nerd in me likes. But because of that, most scholars also regard John's Gospel as the most mysterious of the four Gospels in the New Testament. Um, they say that John didn't write his gospel the way that the other gospel writers did, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not as straightforward as those gospels. It's not as linear. Uh, it doesn't have the same simplicity or directness that Matthew, Mark, and Luke write their gospels with. Instead, John goes in different directions than the other gospel writers do. And you can see that even if you just read through them and kind of compare them to each other. John, put simply, has a different ax to grind in writing his gospel. And he has different goals in grinding that ax too. For instance, when you read John's gospel, at least compared to the other three, it becomes clear that he's much less interested than the other gospel writers in presenting uh, facts and details and, and sort of the history that we're used to from the other gospel writers. And instead, what he seems much more interested in doing is explaining those historical events that he's writing about and getting at the meaning behind them, their significance, their theology, and at least in my opinion, that makes John's gospel much more interesting to read. It also makes it harder to understand, though. And that seems to have caused some problems with some of the early Christians who were reading it. In fact, it still causes problems for some folks who read John's gospel these days. You see, because John left more of the mystery of Jesus and what he was writing, people came, I think understandably, right, to different interpretations about what it was that he was saying about Jesus. And so it's in response to at least one of those interpretations of his gospel that John writes this letter as kind of a follow-up to explain a bit more of what he was getting at in his gospel. <clears throat> put simply, in the early church, there was a group of Christians who had read John's gospel, put their faith in Jesus, and then that was it. That's where it ended for them. That's as far as it went. They figured that was enough. They figured that's all they needed. They thought that once they'd read about Jesus and put their faith in him, that was all there was to being a Christian. It was all about orthodoxy. It was all about head knowledge. It was all about right belief and having the right theology about Jesus and being a spiritual person. And that was it. And let's be honest, right? That is important. We do need to have the right knowledge as Christians. We do need to believe the right things and we do need to put our faith in Jesus. But if that's all our faith amounts to as Christians, just right belief, just having the right theology, just having the right doctrines memorized, then the truth is that our faith as Christians is going to end up being pretty one-dimensional. Because if being a Christian is simply about knowing about Jesus and believing in him, head knowledge alone, but nothing else, then the fact of the matter is that there's gonna be many situations that we encounter as Christians in this world where our faith isn't gonna have much of an effect. And that's what John is trying to get at here in this letter. He's trying to send the message that our faith as Christians is about more than just orthodoxy. It's also about what's called orthopraxy, right practice, right actions, right behavior, living out our faith. To use the theological terms, our justification 
our redemption, our salvation, the fact that God declares us innocent of our sins has to lead to sanctification in our lives. The other piece of the puzzle when it comes to our salvation, transformation, renewal, restoration of who we are to the way that God intended and designed us to be as human beings. In other words, there should be all sorts of situations that we walk into as Christians where we behave differently than we would if we weren't believers. Our faith should have real world implications in real world situations as we live out our faith in real world ways. And John is trying to describe that here in this passage for us this morning. He sort of lays out a hypothetical situation here in verse 17. What if, he asks, you have material possessions and you come across a brother or sister in need? What do you do? Well, for those early Christians who had put their faith in Christ but then figured that was the extent of it, that that's all they needed to do and that there was nothing more to being a Christian, the answer, of course, for them would have been not much. For those who thought that knowing Jesus was enough, they didn't believe that they had to do anything in a situation like that. For them, the gospel didn't have any practical implications. It didn't affect their their day-to-day lives. It didn't have legs, if you will. And so they would have done nothing. They would have ignored the situation. They would have simply walked past that brother or sister in Christ in need without giving it another thought. And chances are we've done the same thing too, right? I know I have. I can remember specific times and places where I've walked or driven or scrolled past clear needs without stopping. We all have. And I doubt it's for the same reasons, right? I'd be surprised if any of us here thought that knowing about Jesus is all that there is when it comes to the Christian faith and we don't have to live it out. I feel like I've gotten to know this congregation by this point one year in to know that that's not really what we believe. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when we, too, turn a blind eye to the needs around us. One reason I think we do that is something I I heard someone one time describe as uh, our ADD. Now, normally, when we use that term ADD, we're using it to refer to attention deficit disorder, which is a real and quite common neurodevelopmental disorder. But that's not what this person was referring to. Instead, he was referring to what he called our affluence distraction disorder in developed countries. He argued that here in developed Western nations like the United States, part of the reason we're sometimes blind to the needs of others is because we're too distracted by our own affluence. In other words, we're distracted by everything that we have. In fact, there was even a meme running around the internet for a while about this, right? First world problems, it was called. You ever hear these? I'll give you a few examples, and just so you know, the the two guys in the booth back there, who are both high schoolers, were making fun of me before the service for this, so. Like, look at you trying to be relevant. These are our first world problems. I have to wake up at 4 a.m. because I'm going on vacation. It's a hard life, right? Let's go to the next one. Not enough dressing on my salad. Now my salad tastes like salad. That one's for sure me, by the way. I have no food in my home that can be made in less than two minutes. This one's terrible. Staying with relatives, they don't know their Wi-Fi password. (laughs) Someone didn't refill the Brita pitcher, and now I have to wait 30 seconds for water, and then maybe the worst one, my phone is so new that no one makes a case for it. It's just terrible, right? 
Those are truly first world problems, right? Because those are problems that only people in the first world, only people with so much, only people like us can call problems. And that's the point. Because we get so wrapped up in those sorts of things that they have a way of blinding us to the not so first world problems that others experience. Our affluence, all that we have, the material possessions and wealth that we have been blessed with, and it is that, they are blessings. It has a way of distracting us and blinding us from seeing the very real, not so first world problems that others deal with, simply because we're so worried about all the problems that come from our own affluence. So that's one reason. But I think there's more to it than that. There's more to our blindness sometimes to the needs of others. Because our ADD is a problem, no doubt, but it's a bit of a surface level one. Because I think it actually goes deeper. And that's because dealing with real needs in this world, if we're honest with ourselves, it's difficult, right? Because when you deal with real needs in this world, that means that you end up having to deal with real people. And dealing with real people is hard. It's not always something we like doing. In my commentary work on this passage, I came across a quote from C.S. Lewis that talks about that. And I don't know exactly where this is from, but Lewis apparently once said, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. I think that's right. And I think it's right because I've felt that in my own life. You know, truth be told, it's a lot easier to talk about loving people out there in general than it is to sometimes love the very real person right in front of us because that can get messy, right? It could be hard. I might not like everything about him. She might get on my nerves sometimes, but if I, if I just love people in general, well, then that's great, because then we don't have to deal with the specifics. And that brings me to the third reason for our blindness sometimes towards the needy around us. It's the specifics. It's the specifics of that person we're faced with. You know, we ask, and we ask questions like, well, why does she need the money? What is he going to use it for? Why is she asking for my help? What did he do to get himself in this situation? I'll help her out, but I'm gonna set the guidelines, the ground rules, the parameters for that help. Oh, he didn't want what I offered? Oh, he's probably just gonna mess it up anyway. I can't tell you how many times I've heard stuff like that in the church. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I've said stuff like that. And it's because we want to be good stewards, right? And I get that. We want to make sure that our resources are used well, and we want to make sure that the help that we offer actually ends up helping rather than hurting those we're trying to help. And there is definitely a time and a place for that. It's not that that's necessarily wrong. It's important to ask good questions, to vet situations, and to make sure that the help we offer ends up helping more than hurting. It's just that if that's the only way we ever go about helping others, is with a whole checklist of criteria and questions, then the fact of the matter is we're probably not going to end up helping others very often. You see, that's kind of an investment approach, right? That's really what we're doing when we ask all those sort of questions and every time we come across a need or a situation. We're treating it like an investment because we want to get a good return on our money, on our investment, right? 
If I invest in you, will I get what I'm looking for? Will it turn out the way that I want? Because this is my money, and so I want to make sure that if I invest in you, you're going to live up to the return that I expect. And so we reduce people, human beings made in the image of God, to things like transactions, investments, profit margins, and good returns. This struck me um, when I was thinking about that. If that's the way that God treated us, who of us would be worthy of his investment in us? You know, what if instead of offering his salvation to us, God instead had come to us and said, you know, I'd like to make this investment in you. I'd like to invest my love in you. I'd like to invest the blood of my son in you. But if I do that, then you can't keep making mistakes. You can't keep messing up. You can't keep living the way that you've been living and and, and living the way that got you here in the first place. If God had done that, if he had taken that kind of approach to us, set up those sorts of boundaries or parameters on our relationship with him, how many of us do you think he would have invested salvation in? The answer is none of us. If that was the criteria, none of us would have been good enough You see, the American dream doesn't work in the kingdom of God. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can't do it ourselves. We need God's grace. We need his generosity. We need his love. And he gives us all of that. He gives us his grace. He gives us his generosity. He gives us his love, his mercy, and his forgiveness. And he gives it to us for free, even though we don't deserve it. That's how much God loves us. We are the objects of his generosity. And as a result, he calls us to love others generously too. And that's John's point here in our passage this morning. You see, John wrote this letter in order to help settle a couple of the debates that were going on between his readers, specifically the one that we talked about earlier. Like we said, some people had read what John had written about Jesus and his gospel, and they thought that was enough. And they didn't think that they actually needed to do anything with what they had read or what they believed. They didn't think it affected their day-to-day lives or how they ought to live in their relationships with others. To them, all being a Christian really meant was just believing. And yet not everyone felt that way. Because while there were some who believed that the Christian faith was just about belief, head knowledge, and having the right ideas and theology about Jesus Christ, there were others in the early church who believed that there was more to being a Christian. They argued that believing in Jesus meant more than just believing in him. It meant living like him too. It meant following his example. It meant receiving the love of God, yes, but then also living out that love. And it meant taking the blessings that God had given them and using them to bless others too. And that's where John comes down in the debate. He agreed with that second group. Knowing Jesus is good, he says, So is believing in him, but according to John, mere words weren't enough. Christian love needed to be lived out. After all, that's what Jesus did when he came, right? He came down to earth and lived out the love of God for us in everything that he did. His words and his actions, his relationships with others, and most importantly, his sacrifice on the cross. It all demonstrated his love for us. And according to John, Jesus' followers need to do the same. 
You know, one way I've heard this passage described, which I think is kind of interesting, is, is sort of as a remix of John 3.16. Most of us can probably rattle off John 3.16 without really even thinking about it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's one of the most memorized verses in scripture, but what most people don't realize is how similar it is to 1 John 3.16. That's because here in 1 John 3.16, John writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And if you pause there, both of those verses are more or less saying the same thing, right? John is saying that out of his love for us, God sent us a savior. That savior, Jesus, gave his life for us. And the reason he gave his life for us is so that we could have life too, That's the basic message of both of those verses. It's a message of salvation, of redemption, of restoration. In other words, it's the good news of the gospel in its most basic form. The only difference is that here in 1 John 3.16, John goes one step further, and he tacks on a bit more here in verse 16, and he finishes this verse by writing, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. There's application here to the gospel message. Justification moves into sanctification. There's a response. So let me ask you, is simply believing in Jesus enough, or is there more to loving him? Does knowing Jesus mean just knowing him as savior, just knowing his love, just knowing the salvation he's offered us, or does it mean more? Does it instead mean going the next step and loving like him? Does it mean working to serve and care for others? Does it look like responding to his generosity towards us with generosity of our own? Yes, it does. You see, while John might have left some mystery in his gospel, he doesn't leave much mystery here in this letter. Loving Jesus, he says, means loving others the way that he first loved us. It means loving with more than words and speech. That's because it means loving with actions and in truth. And part of that means being generous towards those who need our generosity. And that's actually where John heads next here. He brings up that hypothetical situation in verse 17, and in essence, what he's asking there is, what should our love as Christians look like when faced with needs? John's answer, as always, points back to Jesus. Our love should look like his. It should be selfless. It should be ready to give everything, even life itself. That's what Christ did. He was ready to die for us as his brothers and sisters. And that's the kind of love John wants to see Christians living out. He wants to see more than nice words. Instead, he wants to see Christians willing to love like Jesus. He wants to see Christians willing to lay down their lives for one another. He wants to see Christians willing to give up some of their material possessions so they can enhance someone else's life. As C.S. Lewis puts it in his classic book, Mere Christianity, There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving excludes them. That was the level of God's generosity towards us. And John is telling his readers that he wants to see that level of generosity from them towards others as well. And that goes for us too. 
John is speaking to Christians, uh, us as Christians today, as much as he was speaking to his original readers, and he's saying that we should live out the generous love of God as well. You know, our son, Levi, our two-and-a-half-year-old, he loves to help. It's great right now. I hope he continues to do it when he's a teenager. When we wash dishes, he likes to pull a stool up next to the sink and help wash, which I actually don't like because then water gets everywhere, but still. He likes to vacuum as well. Uh, He's got a toy vacuum that he trails along behind us with the real vacuum, vacuuming, and then occasionally pointing out the places that we've missed. Um, He also likes to carry his drink from the counter to the table for mealtimes as well. Now, as you can imagine, there are times where the drink makes it to the table relatively unscathed. You know, most of the beverage stays in the cup, and the, uh, the cleanup required of mom or dad is minimal or non-existent, right? And then there are other times. But you know what? We should actually be like those other times as Christian believers. As Christians, we should be so overflowing with God's love that it spills out of us. God's generosity towards us has filled us up with so much that like a two and a half year old trying to carry a cup to the table, it ought to sometimes spill out of us and onto others. Put simply, the love that we experience from our relationship with God should make a difference, a tangible difference in the lives of others around us. I do want to be careful here, right? Because like I said earlier, we're about preaching the gospel here in this church. That means that we believe God's love and grace to us are free gifts, and we don't need to earn that. And that's not what John is saying here either. And the reason why I say that is because people have occasionally read this passage and taken it that way, that John is saying that we need to earn God's love. But that's not what's going on here. That's not how it works. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, period. It's all grace, it's all a gift, it's all his mercy. But as Martin Luther once supposedly said, while it's true that we are saved by faith alone as Christians, we are not saved by a faith that is alone. Our faith as Christian believers always ought to be accompanied by actions that demonstrate its reality in our lives. Our faith in Christ needs to be accompanied by a response by goodness and love, and goodness and love that is evident in what we say and do. Put another way, our actions as Christians are the evidence of our faith. Our generosity, to a degree, proves that we ourselves have experienced the generous love of God in our own lives. And so we need to look around. We need to see the opportunities that surround us. We need to recognize the needs. We need to get past our ADD and our fear of of the other person in front of us and the messiness that comes along with them and our transaction-oriented approach that only sees other people as investments because we are loved. We are so loved by our generous and gracious God that his love should fill us up, overflow our edges, and splash on those around us. That's what John is telling us in this passage. God's love is huge. It's so big that he sent his love, or his son, Jesus Christ, to lay down his life for us. And we are called to lay down our lives for others too. That's the kind of generous love that we have been given and that we are called to exhibit in our lives as well. And this is a great place to start. You know, right here in our own community, in our own congregation, 
Who of our brothers and sisters here need our love, our compassion, our generosity right here within this church? Because truth be told, I mean, if we can't do it here, then there's no way we're going to be able to do it out there in the rest of the world, right? If we can't care for each other, how are we supposed to care for anyone else? Let's look, I mean, really look at each other. Let's see the needs around us here and how we can live generously as God's people among each other as brothers and sisters. Let's love the way that God has loved us. Let's try to be God-level generous towards one another. And then once we do that, yeah, let's get out there. Because our generosity is part of the witness of our faith. It's winsome. People see it. They're attracted to it when they see people live this way. Let's show and tell this world about the love of our God. Let's proclaim his generosity. Let's spread his love and compassion all around because we know that love firsthand ourselves. And to that end, we've set up an email account, right? Generosity at IvanRestCRC.org, which it was pointed out to me before the service, we don't actually have up anywhere, like on the website or in the bulletin. So we'll remedy that uh, so that you know where to find it. But the whole goal with that is for us to find ways as a church where we can live out God's love and be generous together as a congregation. And so as we continue through this series, let's stay on the lookout for opportunities to do that, for areas of need both here in our own congregation and also in our broader community and world. You know, is there a family here that could use help? Is there some ministry out there that we should get involved in? Is there something that we're already involved in but we could double down on and do even more with? Be on the lookout recognize those needs, and then send them to us. We've already gotten a few to that email account that I think are really cool, really interesting, really exciting. Let's keep going. After all, as John says here in verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we must lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's how God has loved us. Let's love each other and others the same way. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you have given us everything, even though we deserve nothing. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. Lord, help us to receive that grace and that mercy and forgiveness as the gift that it is. And help us also to respond to it by demonstrating grace, mercy, forgiveness, and generosity towards others too. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.